Welcome back to The Health Beat. A podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Neha Anand. And I'm Allie Burgess. In today's episode, medical student Rohan talks with Mike Rashannon and Hopkins PhD student Tushar Joyce about the intersection between medicine and security, including how it applies to the COVID pandemic. But first, let's break down some recent headlines. You may have heard a lot recently about the Delta variant of COVID and the new CDC guidelines related to wearing masks again. Earlier this week, the CDC issued new guidance that advised those who were vaccinated against COVID to still wear masks in public indoor spaces in schools, particularly in parts of the countries where there's substantial or high transmission of the virus. So what exactly does substantial or high transmission of the virus mean? Yeah, this is a question that a lot of people have after this guidance was released. So substantial or high transmission means in counties where there are more than 50 cases per 100,000 people or a positivity rate greater than 8%. And right now, these areas are largely in counties in southern and western regions. This new guidance is based on concern about rising breakthrough cases due to the Delta variant of the virus. Breakthrough cases are when someone who has been vaccinated still gets infected with the virus. The Delta variant is more contagious and is now the dominant strain of the U.S. Even though those who are vaccinated are unlikely to have severe COVID or need to go to the hospital for COVID, they may have a more mild course or may even not have symptoms. It's still really unknown right now whether people who are vaccinated might spread this Delta variant to others. And this is worrisome if they spread it to those who are unvaccinated, who have a much higher risk of severe infection. And so that's the thought process, these new guidelines from the CDC, that vaccinated people may still be able to spread this very contagious variant, the Delta variant. And in places where there are high infection rates are also often places where the vaccination rates are low. So there are a lot of unvaccinated people. Yeah, it's no secret that vaccination rates and low transmission of the virus are linked. Only 49.8% of the U.S. population is currently fully vaccinated. And even though vaccines are much more available now in the U.S. compared to earlier, the rate of vaccination has really slowed, raising the question of whether there needs to be a vaccine mandate. This question of a vaccine mandate is interesting because it can be in many settings, like whether it's the workplace or whether there needs to be a federal vaccine mandate. Interestingly, Hopkins, where we go to school, has required us to prove our vaccination status just earlier this month. And so we at Hopkins as medical students and also employees in the hospital are required to disclose our vaccination status. And it's really encouraged that we get the vaccine. Otherwise, we may uh, have to face consequences like getting more frequent testing and continuing to wear masks if those policies get relaxed. And this idea isn't really new. In previous years, we had to prove our flu vaccination status. And I never really thought too deeply about that. But for people that are against getting the flu vaccine, this may have been a concern in previous years. And I think it's really important in a place where you care for patients or you're exposing your own infectivity to other people constantly to kind of protect yourself and prevent yourself from being a nidus of transmission. Yeah, exactly. And 
If you grew up in the U.S. and went to school here, you likely were subjected to some vaccine mandates by your school. It's required in most schools to submit a proof of receiving your childhood vaccine. So this question about vaccine mandates is novel in the setting of such a new vaccine, but has also been done before. And many places are now rolling out vaccine mandates. So this week, Los Angeles and New York City rolled out a new mandatory vaccine requirement for its public employees. And the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, the VA department, will require frontline healthcare workers to get vaccinated. So what makes the VA system different from even other hospitals or other federal agencies? Yeah, so the Secretary of the VA argued that the risk to veterans who tend to be older and sicker and possibly more vulnerable to illness is too great to do nothing. This will affect 115,000 of the VA's frontline healthcare workers, requiring them to receive the shot in the next two months or be potentially laid off. Currently, about 70% of these workers in department healthcare centers have been vaccinated fully. Also, a group of nearly 60 major medical organizations, including the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association, have issued statements earlier this week calling for mandatory vaccinations of healthcare workers. Biden announced federal employees will need to be fully vaccinated or wear a mask at all times and get tested for COVID-19 regularly. So it makes sense for this to be addressed in the healthcare setting and even in the government setting. But there are other examples of mandatory vaccination in pop culture as well. So Google and Facebook said on Wednesday that all U.S. employees must get vaccinated to step into their offices. And Google is also planning to expand its own vaccination drive to other regions in the coming months. And Netflix has become the first major Hollywood studio to implement a blanket policy mandating vaccinations for the cast of all of its U.S. productions as well as those who come into contact with them on set. In the music industry, Lollapalooza, a huge musical festival in Chicago that started this past Thursday, will require attendees to prevent their vaccination cards or a printed copy of a negative COVID test that occurred within the past three days. And interestingly, Olympics organizers did not employ a vaccine mandate. While supply was not an issue in terms of vaccines for the U.S., it was for many other countries. And the U.S. Olympic team is requiring coaches and support staff to be vaccinated, but not its athletes. So as we've kind of outlined, there's really such a delicate balance between the right to people's personal health privacy and their personal obligation to abiding by public health measures to keep our population safe from coronavirus transmission and variants that could emerge due to low vaccination rates. Ultimately, this is a balance that we've had to revisit over and over again throughout the pandemic and in other health contexts. So let's segue now to Rohan's conversation to dive deeper into this topic. All right. Well, hello, everyone. For today's episode on the important intersection between medicine and security, we have two guests with us. First is Tushar Joyce, who is a PhD student at Johns Hopkins University studying computer security and privacy for personal devices. And uh, next up, we have Dr. Mike Rushanin, who is the director of medical security at Harbor Labs, a security company founded by Avi Rubin, Johns Hopkins University professor. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you both for taking the time to be here. So for today's episode, we wanted to talk about this whole big intersection between medicine and security. First, we wanted to talk about 
COVID-19 sort of contact tracing, and then we can move on into just medical device security and medical health record security at large. All right. So with COVID-19 sort of being at the forefront of everyone's minds, can you tell us a little bit about the technological infrastructure behind contact tracing? Sure, yeah. So contact tracing in general, you know, classic contact tracing involves lots of telephone calls to individuals that may have been exposed who have confirmed cases of a disease, right? But with technology added on top of it, you know, people are carrying smartphones everywhere and smartphones can communicate with each other when you, for example, pass by them. So if you have an interaction with someone, in theory, if you could record maybe their smartphone, you could automate this contact tracing, right? Because you can track down every person you've been with based on the phones that you're near. So contact tracing for COVID-19 has taken two forms. The first is centralized contact tracing. So this is typically a government that releases a, a tailor-made app and all the data from the contact tracing goes straight back to a government entity. So for example, in Australia, there is the COVID safe app and the Australian government will record all the interactions that you have based on your smartphone when you pass by it. So there's this uh, communication technology called Bluetooth that a lot of people have used for headphones, um, you know, music listening, or maybe to connect to a smart speaker, right? But because Bluetooth is a short range communication, you can pick up another smartphone identifier and that identifier is sent back to the government who has a list of all the people, what maps your identifiers and they could do contact tracing that. So that's one way of doing it. And the second way of doing it is the decentralized fashion. So the Google Apple exposure notification system, which is affectionately called GAEN in our circle in the security community is one way of doing it. And this was released with a big fanfare early in 2020. And this one is a little different in that no single party knows exactly who is what identifier. Basically, your phone generates a random identifier and sends that to everyone nearby. And if you walk by someone, you capture that random identifier and put it in your pocket, basically. You put it in a secure location on your phone. Later, if you come to have a confirmed case of COVID-19 with your consent, you can put your identifier on a bulletin board, basically, some public online place that says this identifier has COVID-19. So if you, on your local device in your pocket, like I mentioned, have one of this identifiers that's on this positive diagnosis list, then you know you potentially were exposed to COVID-19. So no central entity knows it because it's all just random identifiers floating over the internet, but um, it might not be as effective. So those are the kind of the two main ways we see contact tracing for COVID-19. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the advantages and the disadvantages of each system, especially maybe like in the U.S., how they've been uh, applied? Sure. So the centralized form, really, we haven't seen it as much in the U.S. So for whatever reason, we've mostly seen the Google Apple exposure notification system. So centralized systems are you know, great for drilling down and getting very accurate data because one person has basically an overview of everything in the system. They can say, well, this exact person talked to this exact person. They can draw the social graph very cleanly. However, from a security and privacy standpoint, that might not be the, the greatest idea, especially if some third person who's not a government entity can capture those same identifiers and retrace a social graph. So you could imagine if you were able to replicate the government's data, you could use it for stalking, 
for example, you could stalk someone, track where they go in a place. Or in, in the government example, it could be used for censorship. You could say, well, these people are doing these things and, and do surveillance and monitoring on them. So that's one kind of the, the advantage and disadvantage of centralized. And then decentralized, you get this, these nice security and privacy guarantees. No one really knows who you are because you just have identifiers floating in space. And that's really great because it's harder to perform attacks that recreate the social graph for these things like censorship surveillance that you can do. On the other hand, you do get this downside of, well, this system is not as robust. You can't get as detailed data and you only, and it requires a lot of consent, like users have to opt into this and things like that. So it's harder from perhaps a public health standpoint to get exact data you need um, to do effective contact trips. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this might be, this might be sort of a tricky question for anyone to answer, but how, how do you balance the need for contact tracing sort of as like a community health tool versus the desire for personal privacy? And I guess to add on to that a little bit, how does that vary based on the situation? Like, obviously, in, in terms of crisis, like this COVID-19 pandemic, that line that you draw might be a little different than for something that's not in a time of crisis. But I guess just to draw like one example in from the medical field, you know, certain diseases are classified as you know reportable diseases so like if, if you interview a patient and you find out that they have for example chlamydia or gonorrhea you actually have a duty to report that to the state government for them to then do certain like notification similar to like a contact tracing infrastructure that gets pulled out of that so the, the sort of like patient privacy to some extent gets tweaked there to allow for effective reporting of these diseases so how do how do you draw the line between balancing these two things and that's a that's a very tricky question. I think it's on some someone on everyone's minds, even in our security community, something that we've been really thinking about. Because there's obvious privacy issues with contact tracing if it's just run wild, right? If you could just capture random identifiers and associate them to people, and people who are not authorized to do that can recreate social graph. You know, I mentioned stalking, censorship, all that. So those issues are there. So we can use tools like cryptography, encryption, signatures, things like that, things that we have in our security toolbox in order to go around those issues, still provide contact tracing, hopefully, to alleviate the, and reduce the spread of the disease while still maintaining a privacy in case the data gets in the wrong hands. There was a paper by some cryptographers late in 2020 that said that exposure notification systems may allow for large-scale voter suppression. And that's kind of a, a buzzword bingo of issues in 2020, perhaps. But I think the interesting thing here is it's one way that systems that we intend to use for one purpose can be misused for another. So there's an example in political science of rain. A rainy day is a way to suppress votes because if there's a rainy day, people don't go out and vote. It's harder to vote. People don't like rain, whatever. So what you can do is you can use exposure notifications to create a rainy day of sorts. Right. If you say, hey, I've been exposed to this disease, then people around you will stay home. They want to make sure they stop the spread of the disease. They'll stay at home. But if you can generate fake exposure notifications, you can suppress votes on a large scale. Like, let's say you go into a neighborhood that always votes for candidate A. If you create a bunch of false exposure notifications, you could suppress votes for candidate A, make sure candidate B win. Right. This did not happen. This election cycle in the United States, it was very secure, ver verified by the same cryptographers that this did not happen. But it's just some, one way that 
if we're not careful with the way we design systems, it could mess up in, in a big way. So I think all of this is to say that we can build these solutions. Cryptographers, security people can work with the medical community to build out technologically enabled contact tracing solutions. And it seems to have worked out this time. And we really work together, Google, Apple, the academic community, public health officials, medical scientists all came together. We developed a system and it seemed like it worked. And I think we can continue to build out these systems even a few years down the line, maybe post-pandemic, but and have them ready to go. All this to say we should build out these solutions, have them at the ready for the time of crisis, deploy them when we need them, but wind them back down when we need to, because we don't want to keep data out there when we don't need it. And I'll leave it to the medical community to know when that crisis time is. So <clears throat> I agree with Tushar, uh, his positions. And I think uh, COVID-19 was a unique use case, right? Because at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I'm an advocate for privacy, but I found myself advocating for transparency. So in terms of reporting COVID and, and doing contact tracing, I thought these were you know, good things to have. And I was even more excited to see that Google and Apple stepped up and had a solution that was regarded both public health and privacy. I also agree with Tushar. I have concerns about the transparent broadcasting and information leakage and things like side channels. So if we put the infrastructure together such that we can do things like contact tracing, while we can use the tools in our security box like cryptography to provide us confidentiality, and these protocols in the physical realm of you know radio frequency and signals we're, we're leaving a footprint right and so there are still some valid privacy concerns that have to do with these wireless footprints so as an example so apple has ibeacons this protocol in which the, their devices can wirelessly broadcast over bluetooth and it's a fixed size message and it has a fixed amount of data in it that says you, you could, for example, use it to sell things or show a coupon. And I had actually performed an experiment where you could use iBeacons to track assets as they moved on a floor in a building. And so, as you might imagine, just by giving out these wireless broadcasts on our personal devices, if the construct is that these are always on, there's still the concern that it's leaking just enough information about you to be able to track you in the physical realm, which would have its own ramifications. And so definitely thought this was great for COVID-19. I definitely think if we were tracing for other diseases, et cetera, that it needs to be more of a, a public health slash policy issue where there's just a lot more discussion and what we're willing to actually provide in terms of data. And then I guess the last point too, is since the COVID disclosure saying that you actually contracted COVID was up to the person, and so we might also want to think about just attackers in general that stand to gain from falsifying their notification to say that, yes, I was impacted because a, a sort of a core principle of computer security is something that we call FUD or fear, uncertainty and doubt. And that this is a sort of standard basic foothold into any system to gather information to sow discord, et cetera. So this is just me agreeing with Tushar in a multi-point way. But it, it definitely merits more discussion outside of COVID. Yeah, I mean, I think you both made some really insightful comments, and I think it is very eye-opening to sort of see, you know, the mechanisms of contact tracing as they exist still sort of have like these like potential openings, and it. it's really important to 
take a critical look at it. And I appreciate that people in your community and Google and Apple have been taking a look into that. So with all of that considered, I was just wondering, like, what are your final thoughts on COVID contact tracing? Are there any steps that you think could be taken or any steps that have been taken that you both are uh, fans of? I think what's really great is that, you know, the academics across disciplines have really come together in this fight against COVID-19, right? I think when I first saw the Google Apple exposure notification system, I was very excited to see, you know, cryptographers, security people coming on board and trying to help the public. And I think down the line, I think that's a great place for us, right? We want to help in any way we can. We have all these tools. And I think that if your listeners are interested in the stuff we do, yeah, to reach out and, you know, if they're in an academic setting, to reach out to even people in their own institution, in their computer science departments, see if they want to collaborate and discuss these issues. That's, I think, a big takeaway from this. Should we move on now to talk about a little more about just medicine at large, sort of medical devices, health security, things like that? So can you, for, for our audience, can you set the stage a little bit here, sort of how do you conceptualize the different types of medical devices and their, you know, the differences between them in terms of their vulnerabilities, their pros and cons? Yeah, sure. So this, this is going to be a long one. So buckle down all the listeners. I should start with this. Medical devices are embedded systems. And an embedded system is not a new concept to computer scientists and engineers. We can think of it as hardware and software that takes commands and performs some tasks. So really, it's just a computer. It has a processor, some memory, and storage. And, and this is kind of the key component, is that it might connect to remote services and transceive data over a computer network. So a medical device takes inputs from clinicians, patients, and caregivers, and sometimes this is done remotely, and directly impact the patient. And that's what sets this medical device apart from your run-of-the-mill embedded systems, right? It may deliver the incorrect drug or electrical shock, severely hurting the patient if something goes awry. And so the most important takeaway here, if you, if, if you weren't listening to anything, is that patient safety is paramount, and it is a risk that must be mitigated when you're considering medical devices. So the concern with patient safety is where like our regulatory bodies step in. So in the U.S., the FDA classifies medical devices based on their intended use. So what does it do? And their risk. So what happens if it should fail? What, how does it impact the patient? Does it you know, sever a limb? Then that seems to be a really bad case. Or does it just make uh, some minor annoyance, right? These devices, they fit in two classifications, or at least the ones that we're going to talk about. And that's class two and three. And let's just think of those as like networked medical devices. So things that we can connect to our, our Wi-Fi. This includes a whole host of devices, actually. It includes infusion pumps, patient safety monitors, continuous glucose meters, surgical robots, pacemakers, and home dialysis machines. So that really runs a gamut. We have things inside the body, outside the body, in the clinical context, and also in patients' homes. Now, a class two, class three medical device, in terms of the way the FDA is thinking about it, is before a manufacturer can even sell these devices, they have to go through a pre-market submission process. And there's something called a 510K clearance and a PMA. I think that's probably beyond the scope of the talk, but it's just a formal process uh, in which all of the risks, especially in terms of cybersecurity, need to be enumerated about a device before you can even sell it in the U.S. So it's a pretty 
arduous process like the documentation there's a lot that needs to that's required and a lot that needs to be done so what does this all mean for you know computer security consultants assessing medical devices so people like me well it means that we have to have a complete completely transparent view of the medical devices architecture and also the design so we need to understand the components like what hardware exists and how, where is it located? Is it on the patient? Is it inside the patient, et cetera? And we also need to understand the data flow between those components. So if you have a medical device that's inside of you, what, let's think about well, what data does it collect and does it transmit it outside of that device or does it just make decisions based on the data that it collects? And lastly, we have to consider our actors. So like I said before, these are patients and clinicians. How do they interact with the overall system? How do they perform maintenance, configurations? How do they view their data and how do they uh, operate on that information as well? So then we need to assess the risk using standard risk methodologies, and there are a ton of them. And to not do alphabet soup, just let's just leave it to say that there's something called NIST and ISO, but these are just really formal methodologies to apply when we're thinking about medical devices. And of course, like I said before, the angle is always bent towards patient safety. Lastly, as a computer security consultant, we need to think about weaknesses and identifying those weaknesses and being able to apply what we call a threat model. So a threat model allows us to categorize threats to the device. What does that actually even mean? What, what is an actual threat? So if we have a medical device and it's, you know, it's connected to the network, one potential threat. So anyone else on the network, what can they do? Can they communicate with the device? Can they eavesdrop on any of the device communications? Can they manipulate or change that? And what is the overall impact of it? And so as we start to delve down into those details into our threat model, we start to think about who are the attackers? What are their goals and capabilities? So attackers could be physicians and patients, right? They can make mistakes and that would make them a valid attacker when we're doing threat modeling. And then there could just be you know, attackers that tend to, they want to do harm. They know that there's a particular medical device and they want to compromise it. And then lastly, we have things like the Mirai botnet where it's just dumb software that's like, hey, I went into your network. And if you can compromise a medical device to do that, why not? That's called a pivot point. And so it will actually take to control the device. And so as a part of the process for computer security consultants, we're mapping all of these risks. So once we identify where all the threats actually are and what severity and what consequences are and how hard it is to exploit, we go about applying mitigations and controls, like encrypting a communication channel to protect out the, these, these threats where we're saying, hey, an attacker might be able to read this or manipulate data. So no, 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 we'll use standard technologies such as TLS to encrypt the channel and provide us integrity in the channel, things like this. And so that's what we're looking at. So to take it back real quick, medical devices are just embedded systems, but they can impact patient safety. Therefore, we need to formally model the risk and assess the risk. Yeah, thank you. That was a super in-depth answer. I, I do want to delve a little bit into some parts of that. I, I don't know if we'll have time to get into the whole shebang, but so you mentioned like doing this threat modeling. So let's say you, you, know, you find like a certain threat, what sort of steps do you then take to try and you know fix that or patch it out and like what are the strengths and limitations of that kind of the work that's being done sure yeah so a part of the process is identifying these threats and it's what you would call like a penetration test so you would model the threats at sort of the hypothetical level like these could be potential ends for the attacker to be able to break the system and then you perform penetration testing, which is where the rubber meets the road. You use standard tools and approaches to be able to co compromise some part of the overall system. And if you're able to successfully do that, 
you'd mark it as some sort of test case, right? You would say, okay, well, I have broken this communication channel between two components as a part of the medical device and its overall architecture. So once you've broken something, you formalize it, you script it up, or you have a program, you write the steps to be able to rerun or reproduce that test. Then in the future for what's called regression testing, you would reapply all these tests to make sure that medical device from that point and every point in the future is still secure against that threat. Great. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you do a lot of important work to kind of fix all of these things and make devices safe. So I think if you sort of took a lens towards the future, do you think there are still gaps out there? And are those gaps having to do with like the technological complexity or is it like a regulatory thing? Yeah, so most definitely. So I'm going to share this answer with Tushar because I think we both uh, have looked in depth into this. From the regulatory perspective, this is my takeaway. The FDA is doing a fantastic job at formalizing cybersecurity guidance, but that's the thing right now, it's guidance. It's been in this guidance sort of holding pattern since 2018. And a little earlier for thinking about how to manage threats and vulnerabilities for devices that have already been released into the wild. And I'd really like to see that guidance come to be more prescriptive. So saying this is the exact framework and approach model that you must apply because it would give us consistency when we're performing these analyses. And I think it would give it consistency, not just to get from like computer security consultants, but from all the medical device manufacturers, getting them to the, the same point that they're doing the tracing, the threat modeling, the analysis and the tools, even getting a good tool set, it would just make everything much more consistent. I think it would streamline the overall process. And I say that because you know, with, I have five years of experience in this, doing this for manufacturers now, and I've seen that every manufacturer does it a completely different way. And I'm always trying to build them back in a consistent way that I know that works and still works and trying to get them in that sort of that same approach. But that's what I would say from a regulatory perspective. So from a technological perspective, I think that a lot of the issues specific to medical devices are quote unquote solved for a certain assumptions. If you do X, Y, Z, then you can use solution APC. And I think where the, the gray area with medical devices is, well, I, I want to assume I can use the solution, but are those assumptions valid? And can we still maintain patient safety? So the gaps that researchers are working on typically try to bring more security, so more cryptography, more controls to devices, as well as the servers that talk to them and get data. And, and securing that path end-to-end is a really big focus of our, of our work. Of course, as Mike said, the regulatory side of things is a little bit slower than the technological development side of things. Understandable because we want to make sure we're using the most mature technology in our medical devices, patient safety paramount. So I think as we develop more technological solutions, we have to make sure that not only do we create them, but also make sure that they work properly for all the assumptions that medical devices need. Because we're technologists, we're security people, we don't know the clinical setting as well as we'd like. And that's where we rely on our medical collaborators to really hone that in. So I guess for, for me, who is in the medical field and obviously not like a medical device expert, I still, I personally feel there's like a little bit of a dichotomy to me between sort of like a lot of the 
kind of old, older medical devices that I think of, you know, say, for example, a pacemaker or a defibrillator, where you go to the hospital and basically the surgeon is going to prescribe that you need this, the hospital will buy it and then they'll do the surgery, put it in, and the access to it is basically all done at the hospital. And we touched upon a little bit about like home devices. And I'm also kind of considering now, you know, your smartphone and your smartwatch has more and more capabilities to do things like measure your, your vitals, measure sometimes. I think there's like a phone EKG now that's kind of in the works. And so not things that you can only get in the hospital and they put it in and you can only access it in the hospital, but your phone is also connected to all sorts of other things, your, your email, your messages, your every, basically anything you do on the internet. So with that sort of division between what used to be kind of everything nicely enclosed within the hospital walls versus a device that does everything also being used for health information, how does that stand in terms of privacy? How does that sort of change the notion of what constitutes health information, who should have access to that information, how you deal with potential threats to that information leaking? So I'll summarize. It's going to be a giant problem. Architecture and design currently is to uh, have decentralized systems that incorporate smartphones, bring your own device that the manufacturer doesn't create, and to have uh, compute backends being in the cloud because it's scalable at the snap of a finger and it provides that sort of processing power. When we're thinking about applications that used to just be very command and simple data oriented. So like the pacemaker example, you might be able to read EKGs from it and you would do that in the office and you could also program it. You had a device that would program the therapy. Well, as architecture changes, we want to give the patient a bit more control. We want 24 seven monitoring of the pacemaker, which means they're going to have a reader device that exists in their home network collecting data. And then you can't expect the device that collects it to hold it forever. So what happens to it? It has to flow to some cloud backend that gives you persistent storage and redundant storage. The data is not lost because we would need that longitudinal data. And then the new focus I've seen is that application developers really, really, really want to apply machine learning algorithms to these data sets, right? They want to improve patient outcomes by understanding what exactly is happening in your physiology at any given point if you give them enough data. And so uh, I think the architecture of the, of the devices is increasing, compute power is increasing, but integration with other devices such as smartphones and cloud-based servers, et cetera, is also increasing rapidly. And I don't think it's going to slow down at any point. So it's a really, really, really concerning thing. But let's think about when you're applying machine learning algorithms to the data sets. Uh, are you de-identifying the data before it goes to the cloud and who administrates the cloud? Is it a public cloud? Then Amazon, for example, owns it. So just a host of problems in terms of security and privacy that we would have to solve to really get this down, down packed. And one extra point I would add is, you know, the expansion of medical devices is hopefully the goal remains to improve patient outcomes. And we have additional data. We can use it in more ways we can potentially provide better therapy and solutions for patient health. But as Mike said, it's going to come down to really understanding what the implications of that are for security, not just for the patient, but also in a patient at home, but also in transit to the hospital, to the doctor, maybe even to the manufacturer. And understanding those solutions is going to be a big, big problem, but it's also somewhere where I think 
um, our community is really trying to bring its best solutions forward for. Well, this has been a super engaging discussion. And I think, you know, uh, for me and most of our audience, I, I think you provided some really fresh perspectives. And I would say most people in the medical field totally agree with those goals that you mentioned, like patient safety, patient outcomes coming first. And we don't often get the chance to think about sort of everything that that entails, you know, from the security background. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to get, get the entire picture. So I really appreciate you both taking the time to illuminate that for us a little bit. So I just want to end with a couple last quick questions. So maybe for both of you, could you try and give like a brief 30 second pitch for the privacy and security field? Why, why it's awesome? What's new? What's cool and happening in the field? I mean, medical device data and being able to operate over that and apply machine learning, I think is like the new wave. I think it's really awesome. It can have really exciting patient outcomes. Like it can improve patient outcomes. Just super concerned about how we maintain the privacy of that and what the implications are over time. So computers aren't going away. In fact, we're getting more and more of them and they're collecting a lot of data. And the more you have, the more computers you have, the more data you have on you, which is great because you can find out more about you, but it can't be great if the computers then find out more than you know about yourself. And what we're trying to do in the security field is trying to wrangle that data, make sure that users, patients, or medical devices have control of their data and use it to improve their own outcomes while keeping it shielded from prying eyes. And I think that's the big thing with security and privacy. You know, we are kind of at the forefront of this data-driven revolution, and we can help ensure that we don't lose sight of what's important. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that segues in really nicely into my last question, which I'm very thankful for the work that you both do in keeping everything private and secure. But what steps could an average person, like one of our listeners potentially, like what steps can we take to just be good stewards of our own data, whether it's our health information or just other parts of you know, our personal data? Like what are the steps we can take to help keep our private information private? Yeah. I would say read into your rights when you use platforms and social media, understand GDPR, right? Just see what happens to your data, how it's used, how it's monetized and advertised. And that should just give you the feeling of like, wow, my data is actually important. Like people care about my data. And if people care, there are reasons. And so, you, you know, just take that for what it means. And that means that your data is really like, it's important. And so if anything, this should be a lesson to help motivate people to take a step back and go, someone's willing to pay for this. I should probably see what I'm providing and what that actually means for me. And one really easy thing, I think your listeners who use electronic medical records platforms like Epic can do is if they have not already, they can turn on two-factor authentication in their account settings, which is basically when you enter your password, you get a text message on your phone that says, hey, are you sure? Are you entering um, your password? Are you logging in? You basically accept that by entering a, a second code that's texted only to your phone. And that's a really easy way, I think, to protect uh, your um, passwords. Because if, for example, your password gets lost or compromised, you know, the attacker who got your password still needs to have your phone, basically, which is a quote unquote second factor. And I think that's like one easy step one that if they haven't done, they should go out and do right now. Pause this, go do that and come back because uh, I think that is at least one way you take away you can take from this whole discussion we've had today. 
All right. Well, Tushar and Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to you know talk with me today. I think, like I mentioned before, I learned a lot, and I hope that you know our viewers take a, take away a lot from this in terms of the practical stuff you just mentioned, and also in terms of some of the higher level like machinations that go on in the world of privacy and how when you when you come down to the mortal world of medicine with all your infinite wisdom, how it gets applied to our patients. So thank you so much for taking the time. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic and make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time.